You're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Avi and Danny and we're going to be talking to them about adopting their three girls. That'll be followed by questions from our audience. Hi both of you. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. So you've managed to get all three children into bed in order that we can record this podcast. That's very impressive. It's it's a quiet time and yeah, we, we managed to get them in bed. So certainly on school nights. That's very, very impressive. Are they good at going to bed? Uh, <laughs> no, they're actually good in going to bed. Uh, they are not go- good of falling asleep. So uh, <laughs> then we require, each one of us required to be with two and one of them to get them in into sleep. Gosh, it's such hard work, isn't it? Tell me how old they all are now. So our eldest, uh, we have three girls Mm -hmm. and our eldest, she is nearly 10. Our second, she is five. She literally had her birthday party yesterday, (laughs) a big one. And our youngest, she's uh, nearly three. Oh, lovely. Did you survive the birthday party all right? Actually, it was really fun. Uh, I was really surprised. Uh, we had a, a wonderful entertainer that uh, made the made the whole thing real, really great and fun. So yes, it was good for you. No, that's that's fantastic. So let's go back a little bit. So your children now are ten, five, and three. What age did they all come to you? Um, so our, our our oldest came to us at eleven months, and she she was really the oldest of the three. Uh, and then the other two came at pretty much the same age. So it was around six, seven months. So you did the baby thing three times over. You know, they were all quite young, weren't they, when they came to you? Yeah, I mean, I think just to say some of that, um, we thought it would be easier, but a lot of it relates to the fact that we are a bilingual family and we thought it'd be easier uh, for a younger baby to acquire a second language. That's interesting. And so did you meet any resistance to that from social workers whether that was assessing social workers or placing social workers or were they quite positive about that? Uh, I think we, we were incredibly lucky I mean our first our first journey we had this social worker who was uh, really more of a like a marketing but I mean she was amazing and anything we had we thought was a disadvantage she was like showing us how it's great so and and what she was saying is look uh, bilingualism is a great thing I mean it's you know it develops cognition it's really great for you know child's development could you research this for us so she's initiated it, and 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 that's what we did. So actually, uh, when when we got into panel, uh, part of the documentation we attached was a summary of the advantages of bilingualism. Uh, but but that you know that that came with a lot of support from her. If I'll go a little bit backwards, uh, while we we did the assessment with her, uh, we said that we we would like to have a young child. Uh, younger than 18 months because of that reason. So it's not something that came up late in the process. It was very clear right at the beginning that we are going to be a bilingual home. We are going to speak the two languages at home. Uh, We are speaking uh, Hebrew and English, mainly Hebrew at home. Uh, English is only when friends coming in. So it was very clear upfront that uh, it's one of, uh, from our, our end, a must uh, criteria, so it's not something we can compromise on. 
That's interesting. So at least it was always known. So you didn't, as you say, have to have those conversations late. But I guess that narrowed the pool of children that you were able to consider if you were looking for a child that young. Did you do foster to adopt or did you go straight for adoption? So, so when we started, uh, foster to adopt, I think, wasn't even an option. It was only an option when, when we got to our second. I think we, we were lucky in terms of timing in the sense that where we adopted at the time, uh, that there were a lot more children than than potential adopters. And so it, it really wasn't an issue and it was quite a quick process. Yeah, so that, in that sense, it was never, you know, even though we've done it, you know, t- 10 years ago now, uh, a little over that, it wasn't it wasn't ever an issue really and another thing was that uh, again talking about the social worker that we had she looked on us as a family that could tick many boxes so she basically said okay so because you are not originally from Britain so you might be open for example to a child that is multi-race background and you might be more open to to uh, children who are not necessarily uh, white British, which the area that we adopted, uh, which was in north of England, it's dominantly white British. And, and uh, she said that we, they might sometimes struggle to find adopters who are open uh, to kids who are not white British. So in a way, that was uh, for uh, as an advantage for us, the fact that we, we didn't limit anything. I mean, when we did the assessment, we basically, uh, that was almost the only uh, limitation that we put, that we want a child that will be able to acquire another language. That's really interesting. So it sounds like you had quite a clear vision for how you wanted your family to look. And you've got three girls. Did you, with the second child, were you looking for a second child? Or did you get that phone call where they say there is a second child on the way? Yeah, no. So, I mean, we, as, as uh, you know, I think as we were saying, the, the, the first one, we, we lived in, in, in the north, really. And that's where we've done the adoption. And then we waited a good number of years and it didn't seem like there was going to be a sibling. And we sort of thought it'd be nice, uh, you know, for our oldest to have a sibling to play with. And that's where we started a completely independent process. That's uh, near London. Yeah, so no, it was, it was a, a brand new process, uh, unrelated, but you know, with the same sort of rationale. And I think just because we've already done it once and we almost knew how to, you know, what we were, were going to ask for and how to present the whole uh, cultural and linguistic element in terms of what, what would work well. And because we've done it once, it was uh, it was easier to work with a new agency. That's quite good that you approached it feeling that it would be okay the second time. And then with the third one, was that that you initiated that or was that the phone call that says a sibling is on the way? So actually, we we didn't plan to have three kids, uh, but then literally a week after we had this conversation that we are not going to have a third <laughs> child, obviously, we got this phone call oh. saying that our eldest has a sibling, sibling to come, so sibling to due. So it was about uh, four weeks before the birth, and social worker just discovered that the birth mom is pregnant. And about two days after they discovered that, the birth mom hide that, they contacted us to ask if we are willing to do it. They wanted to check if we are willing to do foster to adopt, but because we are not living anymore in the north uh, and we are living in London, 
they it was basically a technical issue to to make it so the second the third uh, process was a very fast adoption process but not fostered to adopt because of of the distance yeah i understand and how did you feel having had that phone call when you had as you say just decided that you weren't going to do it i'll, I'll tell you it's, it's a funny one um I, I come from a family where you know there's two of us whereas avi he comes from a family with four and so it kept on being him saying we need more and i was like no 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 we don't need any and you know two is plenty and and you know i was very clear on that like i wasn't going to change but it's funny that soon as they called there's a sense of you know she's part of the family i don't know it was like an emotional thing like a switch and because she's our oldest you know biological sibling i was like you know there's no way we we're not going to raise her it's just not an option and i think that that was you know it was like it was moving from something very cerebral and rational to like saying yeah we've got to do it there's no question about it i i can tell you that when i got this phone call and when i sorry uh, so when i got this phone call and when i called to danny and it was exactly a week after he he was very clear no third child it <laughs> took him less than 15 seconds to shout into my my ear yes 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 call them back he say yes 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 so, <laughs> that is we, really lovely that you felt so so committed to doing it you know even though it was obviously a bit of a surprise <laughs> so you went from no children at all to three children in what five years something like that or a bit longer than that yeah a bit longer than that I mean, yeah uh, seven years okay so yeah so you had a bit of time i guess between each one to get used to the new levels of chaos <laughs> yes yeah yes. i mean the funny thing uh we we said that we will never have two kids with the nappies at the same time and that's the only thing that we followed we'd never had two kids with nappies well that's that's excellent <laughs> and how did the bilingual thing go you know you said that you speak hebrew at home and is that the main thing that you did was at home hebrew and then outside home english or did you do other more formal things like formal teaching or anything like that So if I'm going backward once we've been matched with a child immediately after the matching panel uh, we provided to the foster cares materials in Hebrew when I'm saying materials it was uh, CDs with uh, music and we we provide uh, uh, videos with uh, cartoons in Hebrew so the Hebrew will be for the period before the the introduction the Hebrew will be something that they already hear uh, when we started the introduction from the first moment that I met so I I was the main care and from the first moment that I met the child immediately I've started to speak in Hebrew so there wasn't any point that I spoke with the kids in English and the whole idea is to get the child used to that and to get the child used to the tone of the language to yes to get the child used to the um, let's say soft words that you love your child with in a way so uh, that was from the first moment with our first uh, child because of the panel was a bit worried and Uh, we said that uh, I will speak Hebrew and Danny will speak English and more or less that was for a period of time but it was very much felt 
in a way fake and not natural for us. So later on, we moved to speaking Hebrew completely. And, and with the second and with the third, it wasn't an, an issue anymore. Because when social worker came to our home, uh, they saw us speaking with the, with the kids in Hebrew while the social worker was here. So, so the social worker, in a way, was present in a situation that she do- doesn't understand what we are saying, but she saw a, a, a good communication in Hebrew, in a way. So, so it wasn't something that we, we changed agenda about it. It was very clear from the beginning how we are going to act with. Yes, it sounds like with the second and third, you'd proved the theory almost, that it was completely possible and completely fine. Um, so obviously, I guess when we all approach adoption as LGBT plus people, we worry about whether that will be a barrier. You had to talk about wanting to be wanting to raise the child in a bilingual home. And I guess you had to sort of prove your case for that. You know, you were asked to find research and so on. Were there any other barriers that you're worried about around culture, around coming from abroad, around any of those things? Yeah, I mean, the, the, to, to, to be fair, we, you know, first around, we're pretty sure none in the right mind would let us adopt. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's, it's it's probably a common fear when you come into this, you know, as as as, as a gay person. Uh, and for us, we kind of felt there were so many layers of difference in a sense. Um, so there was the, you know, obviously yeah, the being gay bit. There was the fact that we came from a different country. And actually at the time, we haven't been here for too long. We weren't even formally citizens at the time. Uh, so we weren't even sure if we'd be able to, you know, go through the adoption process. Uh, you know, we've lived in the country for a little while, but we were still sort of on, on this sort of like work visa type status. Yeah, and, and, and the language. So we sort of thought, oh, God, you know. <laughs> Uh, not, not, not much. Uh, you know, not, not, not too many advantages there. Um, but, but again, I mean, I think it was, it was working through it. And uh, sorry to say that again, but, but the age, that agency in particular, they were so welcoming and open, and, 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 and not, not really phased by it in any way, and really focusing on, on, on positives. I mean, one of the things maybe we didn't say, but. Uh, with the bilingual thing, uh, we've got a friend who researches just that. So she's a professor at the university. And I think the social worker was so overwhelmed by that. She was like, <laughs> I can't believe. It's like, well, we couldn't believe it. It was complete coincidence. But <laughs> that's, you know, one of our best friends, uh, you know, who lives here um, yes. is, 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 is a researcher just in that field. And so she helped us with a lot of the, you know, articles in that. Um, and I, I think the language itself was part of a whole package of being different. So I remember in the first year, I tried to think how many layers of differences uh, <laughs> our, our daughter has. Yes. So the fact that we are gay couple, the fact that we are foreigners, we came from Israel, the fact that we speak a different language, uh, the fact that we are Jewish and we, we kept, we kept uh, Judaism, so that's our religion at home mm. uh, and all that uh, together created a package uh, I used to call it uh, I, when I went to a, a panel I used to call it a backpack of differences but in a way everyone has his own backpack of differences we are not the same everyone has uh, his uniqueness or her uniqueness that that we carried and that's part of the package. That's part of our backpack that we are carrying. So it's all 
a question of your attitude to it. You can say, oh, I'm so different, I'm so stressed about it, or it could be your advantage. You are bringing something different to, to the life. I think that's a really good point. And also, adopted children, by definition, are different to most of their classmates by the fact they're adopted. And I think that putting them in a family that's used to difference, that's used to navigating difference and explaining difference and being tolerant of people's assumptions or, you know, whatever it is that we all learn when we're different, that's, I think, an advantage. And I sometimes wish that it was approached more like that in assessment. It sounds like it was approached like that in your assessment to some extent. But an understanding that it's not despite the fact that we're different that we're good. It's possibly because we're different that we're good at being parents. Yeah, and 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 it's a really good point because um, I think the the more experience we acquired, the, the more we came to see it. I think we started off seeing it as a disadvantage, and we learned to see it exactly as you know as 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 you said it before. In in the sense that we actually now say it's it, there are a lot of similarities between being gay and being adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a marker of difference. It's not necessarily visible, so people can't necessarily see it but it's such an important part of your identity. And so I think as gay people, we fully understand the experience of what it's like being adopted. It's just, you know, that whole I'm different to other people. Can they tell? Can't they tell? And how does it change me? And how much is it part of me? Or, you know, the, the whole of me? Um, yeah. So I think in that sense, there's there's a real interesting similarity that, that can be used as an amazing advantage. If I can add to that, when I'm thinking of myself coming out long, long time ago to my family, to my friends, I remember the number of the level of questions that I've been asked about being gay, sometimes very inappropriate question, but the level of questions was very uh, deep. So it was always questions and people try to understand what it means to be gay. I'm, I'm not talking about this time that the, uh, it's more common. I'm talking about a very conservative society 30 years ago. Yes. Uh, and being adopters today, sometimes I feel that it's coming out again and again and again. So in a way, as I'm going to a new place and I'm never hiding the fact that I'm, I'm gay and I'm putting it on the table up front from the beginning, sometimes I, uh, I feel that... Uh, talking about adoption, it's the same. And what is fascinating is that people like losing the the, the British politeness when it's come to adoption. <laughs> uh, there is no politeness with that. And people could ask you the most uh, sensitive and straightforward questions that will they will never, ever ask in a heterosexual uh, or a non-adoption situation. And it's, and it's amazing. I mean, I can stand in, in the school uh, uh, yard uh, waiting uh, to pick uh, one of my daughters and someone that I literally don't know will come and look on my youngest and my second and say, oh, they look so similar. Are they biological or not? Yes. And how do you answer those things? To be honest, it depends on my mood. Uh, <laughs> so if I'm in the mood of uh, being argumental, my answer will say, they are sisters, they are, they are sisters by God, and there is no answer for that. And so that will be one answer. 
but uh, if uh, I want to to answer that, uh, so I, 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 I literally say the truth. No, they are not. But they are now sister because we adopted them and that's what the matter. Yeah, but I do recognise what you're describing, that sense that the children's story is kind of public property and that you're asked some really, really direct things. Yeah. And so you mentioned that, you know, when you first were going through the adoption process, you were relatively new to the UK. How did you go about building the kind of support network that you need to become a parent and to become a parent by adoption? What did you do to... And it sounds like you moved from the north to the south as well. How did you put those connections around you? So it's really interesting to to think how it was before the adoption and what's happened after the adoption. And I'm talking about the first adoption because before the adoption, we had uh, the social worker who said, you need to have a local support. You need to have friends who will support you here. You need everything here, 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 here. And when... Our first child came to us. The first two weeks were really difficult. And I struggled with the whole uh, attachment uh, at the first two weeks. Mm -hmm. And when she came to visit, she asked me, what will help you? Uh, And I said, I really need my family. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what? Okay. And she approved that my sister... Immediate. It wasn't even it took long that my sister will come from Israel to stay with us for a few weeks uh, to help me to adjust the whole situation. Yes. And it was something of her understanding that in a way we are not local. We don't have these circles of support that maybe local uh, originally uh, adopters has. So she need to be uh, very much out of the box thinker to find solution with that. With the second and with the third child, our circles of support were much uh, wide, was much wider. But again, based on the experience from the first child, we said in the case that we will need, my sisters will come from Israel to support us. And they accept that. And that's actually what happened. Even again, with the the second child, uh, three weeks into the adoption, my sisters came, stay with us for a few weeks, again, to help us to to adjust into the living as as a family of four. Unfortunately, with the third child, even if we wanted that, we kind of... uh, when, uh, so we were much experienced, but we also marched directly into COVID. So we didn't have that. Uh, yeah. to have. But you have good sisters. Yeah, I have brilliant sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Can I borrow your sisters? They sound awesome. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the benefit of being the youngest child of the family. So my <laughs> sisters are, some of them are already grandma. And right. so for them, the fact that I became a dad age of 40, uh, that was kind of oh, great. So we have another another child into the family. That's really lovely. So how many sort of grandchildren are there, if you like, in the family? So my mom has how many grandchildren? So my mom has twelve grandchildren and six and and six great great grandchildren. Wow! So you have got a big family. <laughs> I have a big family, which is quite typical to a Jewish family. 
uh, I think Danny is, is more different when you look on families uh, than me. Uh, in Israel, it's very common to have uh, four kids in the family. And I'm, because I'm the youngest and I've born to a very old, at the time, old parent, my sister is much, much older than me. And I had the benefit of that. I mean, my nephews has uh, children themselves. So, wow. and, and they, their children are in the age of my children or oldest. So, Do you ever manage to all get together? Yes, we actually on uh, because of COVID, not uh, not in the last few years, but uh, before that, we used to to go to Israel at least twice a year. My sisters and my nephews used to come here very often. We had an average of every forty five before COVID, every forty five days we had a, a guest in the house. <laughs> Uh, so COVID completely ruined that. Yes. And uh, now we are waiting for uh, uh, the Passover because we are going finally to visit the family uh, for a good few weeks. Oh, that's really lovely. Will you manage to see your family as well, Danny? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mine's slightly spread all over the world, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the bits that are in the country, yeah, Absolutely. I was going to say, by the way, just just to go back to your question about the support networks, some of them are, are, you know, you sort of acquire them on the way. And I think we've had a really nice example first time around because, I mean, I think you just talked about the, you know, sort of uh, sister coming in. But actually, the foster carer was was became part of our support network, which we didn't anticipate at all. But I think because we weren't particularly experienced and she was this incredible woman who's done well, she's had her own kids, and then she, you know, she fostered quite a few. I oh, think forty, actually. <laughs> wow. Her her generosity in just being available for anything we ever needed to ask, and you know, call at any time, and she was just there, you know, in a very non-threatening way. It didn't feel like you know she still wanted to be there. It was really you know whatever you need, you know, and 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 it was great. I think you know. A long time after the adoption, we could we still. I mean, still, you know, we're still in touch, and we don't need to ask any questions at this stage. But you know, for a good a good uh, couple of years, certainly, you know, she was she was a source of support. So, and and we we didn't think that was going to happen. With the first fosters, we we built such an amazing relationships that the first fosters are literally part of our family till today. So we visit them a few times a year. They visit us. When there are birthday, it doesn't matter that it's not the kids that they fosters. The other two kids, they still get big present from them, and they actually our connection to Christmas because with them we are uh, before COVID we used to to come to them for Christmas, and so they were our connection to to the whole culture of Christmas. And they send during COVID they send the Christmas presents to the girls. And so they became like our one of our immediate support and network even 10 years later. Yeah, that's really lovely. We're still in touch with the foster carers for our son as well. And it feels so important because they were custodians of him for that time. And it just feels, I feel really lucky that we have that connection and that we still have it. Yeah. So if you got the phone call again, another sibling, what do you think? Would you? Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> one week before last time. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's true, it's true. But I mean, I think, uh, n- never to say never to to an extent, but also it's, 
you know, it's it's tough and, and there's a limit to the number and we're not getting younger. I mean, I think it's just being practical about it. I don't know if we'll manage to be in real time, but I hope, I hope so. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and, and to be fair, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can almost see why social services at this point would say, not sure. You know, you've got you've got plenty on your hands, and I think a lot of it, just to say, is to do with uh, complexity over time, which you're not aware of when you start the journey. I mean, um, you know, our oldest um, is is now diagnosed with um, um, ASD and then um, ADHD, and you know we're managing it, but it's it's a burden, and I think so. It's not just about the adoption part of it; it's that a lot of times these kids need the additional time, additional resources. And you don't realize it when you get them at six months. At six months, it all seems, well, it's not sweet and, you know, it's chaotic and, <laughs> and noisy, but you don't realize the complexity that will come along the way. And I think now that we know more of it, we understand that they need they need our time, they need our, our attention. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because um, we've actually just done a survey with the new family social membership. And it was just sort of a four-question survey, but it was when you first knew of this child, were they diagnosed with, and the list was autism, ADHD, or trauma-related issues? And then have they since been diagnosed with those things? And if they aren't diagnosed, do you think they display uh, traits of those things? And a significant number of people were saying, no, the child was not diagnosed at adoption. In lots of cases, like yourselves, the child would have been too young for a diagnosis or whatever. But later, they either have been diagnosed or they are displaying traits and are in the process of seeking a diagnosis. And so I think it's just interesting for how many of us, ADHD and autism become relevant to the child that we're raising, even if at the time that we went forward, we weren't thinking that those things would be relevant. And I guess for some people possibly ruled those things out as well. And then all of a sudden, we're all in that as well. And so having talked to our own membership about that and found out how many of us that's relevant for we're looking at making some recommendations really to agencies to say, talk to prospective adopters about autism, talk about ADHD, because these are so commonly diagnosed later that people need to have it on their radar that even if you think you're adopting a child who doesn't have those issues, that actually you might be adopting a child who does. And I I think I I agree, but I'll say something about it. I mean, I think you're you're right. I mean, the the rates are much, much higher than they are uh, in in, in sort of non-adopted, but at the same time, it's almost like you don't understand what it means until it starts and until you start living with it. And I think if I was told about it, I might have been slightly intimidated by it. Do you know what? I feel the same. I think the things that we thought we not only couldn't cope with, but perhaps things that we didn't think we wanted to cope with. Actually, I just think now it's it feels okay because it's somebody that we love and it's somebody that we care for. And those things, I realise that the the manifestation of those things can be very, very different. And so, you know, for us, the things that we face are things that feel faceable, you know. But um, yeah, I I think that we might have made different decisions if we'd known what labels might be later attached. And yet now, of course, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, and 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 I was going to say exactly the same. I mean, it's because you know she's us. I'm just talking about the oldest because she's the only one who's been diagnosed, but the other ones are, are too young. Yes, it means a lot. It changes your every day. There's a lot more work as a parent, a lot more investment, and and a lot of you know 
all that realization that she's a lot of things that she she won't be able to achieve and that she'll need a lot more love and protection you know than a child without these diagnoses but at the same time she's ours and it's not even an issue you know so it's pretty clear that we just carry on doing it and trying to do the best we can and it sounds a bit yeah i don't know soppy but but um <laughs> you're allowed to be soppy once you're a parent it's fine yeah but but i think that's 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 what it feels like so in a sense i think if you were to ask me you know pre-adoption you know to the had this whole exercise of will you what you take this sort of child mm-hmm. you know i might have said no to autism um, you know, I used to work with with, with autistic uh, young adults ages ago, but actually, when it's in my house, it's a different experience. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that, and it does seem that for lots of us, this is a thing that comes with time. And I don't necessarily mean that it's disproportionate in adoption because I don't know whether it is or not. But I guess what I mean is that when we have those conversations about would you consider X, would you consider Y? And of course, the social workers always say we can't guarantee, we don't know the future and so on. But for lots of us, that is true. And something comes up later. But yeah, I think my experience like yours is that it felt manageable when it came up, albeit challenging manageable, but because it was suddenly somebody that I wanted to get it right for, you know? I totally agree. But I think when we are talking about the process of adoption, what is the most important, in my opinion, is to understand that adoption is not like birth in the fact that there is, it's an unknown journey and there is so many things that you are going to discover about your child that you don't have any, any uh, pre-background to help you with that and to yeah. support. It's not just autism. It's so many other stuff that you you will need to deal with. So, for example, how you uh, tell your your child about the background, about the, the family background. This is an issue big, not less than, than, than autism. I mean, a child that needs to confront a very terrible story in her or his background is not less problematic and traumatic than being with, diagnosed with something. And that's the major thing with, uh, with, with adoption. We are in an unknown land. We are in, an, in, in a journey that we need to discover so many things. And that's the thing that needs to be addressed, I think, in the, in the training, that it's not addressed enough. That's really useful that you said that. I think it is something for people to think about. I wonder, given the journey that you've had, you know, three children who all arrived with you separately and those raising those children as bilingual and all of the um, things that you brought to that about building your support network and then later what we've just been talking about, about the needs of those children. What would your advice be to people who are perhaps listening to this and thinking about applying to adopt? I mean, I think it's 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 an incredible incredible thing to be doing. There's no question about it. It does take resources and a lot of resilience and commitment. But I I only view it as a as, as a strong strong positive in our lives. You know, not just in terms of the giving and 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 being there for 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 the girls, but I think what we get from it and what it did to our lives, which I 
you know, I don't think we would have gotten otherwise. I, I don't, you know, of course, like, you know, I can't compare. We only have adopted children. But um, it's it's funny, like where we come from, um, the, the model for gay couples, um, mainly men, is surrogacy. So they also go overseas and, you know, they come back with lovely blonde babies, um, you know, from somewhere else. And it's like the norm. And we just didn't feel comfortable with that model at all. And, and, and I think uh, uh, there's something, it, it's almost like, on the one hand, that sense of what you can do and contribute to the lives of, of, of these children, and at the same time, what you get back from it, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. I, I, I think for us, thinking, for example, on surrogacy uh, in comparison, we, we felt that it will be much more difficult for us to justify the fact that we choose to do surrogacy than anything else. And if you will ask me now, looking backward on my life, would you do it again? And the answer is absolutely yes. So in my opinion, and, I, and I'm quite sure that for Danny, the same, and is that it's either adoption or not. There is no other option for what we, we felt or, and still. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Now I'm joined by Jackie, who's a member of the New Family Social Board of Trustees, and Jackie's brought along some questions from listeners. Hiya, Jackie. Could I have your first question, please? Hi, Tor. Okay, the first question is, will we face resistance if we adopt a child and want them to be bilingual? Well, I mean, that certainly was what came up in this podcast, and it's an issue that lots of families are really interested in. So um, the guys in the podcast were saying that there was a little bit of concern when they raised that, but they made it clear that for them that was an absolute. And so they looked for an age of child and I guess, you know, a kind of child with the ability and so on that they could function um, in a bilingual household. I think probably would have faced more resistance had that child been that bit older, perhaps, you know, more established because they adopted a very young child. And so that child was still at an age where acquiring language was fairly easy but the older the child gets and the more established they are with English as their only language I think the harder that would be to put them into an entirely other language speaking household. I've heard about some parents who sometimes do one parent one language so for example one parent will speak German one parent will speak English the whole time which works obviously if the parents speak each other's language but I mean your parents didn't speak English at home did they? No, they didn't. They spoke a language called Konkani, which is from um from Goa, um, which is where my parents are from. But they never taught us the language. This is a real shame. Um, and my mum still blames me, but it's actually a dance word to teach me. But to be quite honest, I can actually understand a conversation if it's being held in front of me. I can understand what the conversation is. So, but I cannot speak it, which is a real shame. And it really wasn't pushed. But I think the the push was to make us learn English more back in the day. I think we're talking about the the seventies, really. So it's a totally different thing then. Yes, it sounds like for your parents, the learning of English was quite, you know, four in their minds when when you were here. Yeah, absolutely. Get jobs and stuff like that, which is how they were thinking back in the 70s. And I think that's, that's fair enough. I think it's very different nowadays. Do you regret that you can't speak your parents' language? Um, I do. I do, I think. I mean, you know, because language is quite a form of identity. um, And I think it's, it would have represented something for my parents history and to my identity as well and um, it would have been nice to just kind of continue that trend because uh, you know it will go with my parents that that ability to speak um, another language um, that, that's a real shame actually so um, I, I wish they did 
do it. But it was just a different time, different politics, different decades. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and we've got another question here, uh, which is about different needs of children. And somebody said to us, I don't know whether I could raise a neurodivergent child, but I feel bad saying that. What shall I do? That's a tough one. And they're very honest in that question, I think. Um, I think you have to be competent to say no first. If you're not comfortable about a child that you're reading a profile and information about, you either need to ask questions or you need to say no. But in terms of being neurodivergent, it's an umbrella term and it covers many different um, conditions, including ADHD and also autism. Um, and I think one of the, the first things I, I probably would do is go off and find some work on it, some research about the, the condition in terms of being neurodivergent. And you need to remember, it's not a negative thing at all. It's actually quite a positive thing. I was diagnosed as an adult maybe two or three years ago having ADHD. And in hindsight, I can see it now. But the positives are is that they've got, you know, I've got the ability to hyper focus on something. So if I need to get something done, I will just focus on that and I will get it done. I'll get it done really well. I'm also, you know, people with ADHD are really creative um, as well. So they into painting, into dancing or singing, which I can't do any of, but I can write. So I'm quite into writing. So that's something that I really like. And I also say that people with ADHD make really good doctors, nurses and paramedics as well, because they would just focus on the issue at hand whilst there's loads of noise going on around you and they can multitask and think on their feet. I mean, obviously, I do have some negatives, believe it or not. So I have got some help with an, um, an assistant who helps me plan my diary, which really, really is quite important in the working life, but also family life as well. So there are issues there, but it's different for every case um, in terms of ADHD and also autism. So it's really just looking at the bigger picture and not always worrying about the negatives. There are many, many positives as well. I think it's really good that you're pointing that out because I think that for a long time they were only seen as very negative things and I think there's a real growing movement of people who are autistic, people who've got ADHD who are talking about their experiences as adults and saying these are my strengths, these are my challenges and I think it's worth as well remembering that the two things that we're mentioning, autism and ADHD, which would come under that neurodivergent umbrella, each of those is a massive spectrum of different need, different challenge, different skill, and so on. And I think it's always hard. You know, if you're looking at, say, a three-year-old child or a four-year-old child or a five-year-old child, it is really hard for anyone, even professionals, to predict what that future looks like with a great degree of accuracy. But I think now... There are some things now that I know about ADHD, about people who are autistic, that actually, if I were retaking those decisions and going back, I might be more open to things that I think I said no to back then, because I just didn't really know anything. And it felt safer to say no. I hope now that I might dig through that a bit more and be more open minded, because I now understand much more about the whole breadth of what those things not the whole breadth, but the breadth of what those things can mean and about the diversity within those labels. You know, it's all so different for different people. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, it's a pleasure. I'd like to thank my guests today, Avi and Danny, and the listeners who sent in their questions via the contact form on our website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. 
The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.